Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the distributed ops department, it's election shock therapy. Wash your hands. (laughs) Joining me not in my office or really anywhere near me are... Andy Bramston, Matt Kukum, and Sam Alberry. And just just to confirm for everybody that we are practicing proper social distancing. Uh, Matt, where are you right now? Very like miles away from you guys. Um, so I'm not going to get whatever you have. I am in my home <laughs> office right now. <laughs> I ain't, I ain't got nothing, man. I'm good. <laughs> Andy, where are you at? I'm actually on the fourth floor of the CC, but it's very <gasps> lonely up here. I might be the only person on this entire floor. I'm certainly the only person. As God intended. So <laughs> I was up in the suite the other day to grab some books, and I noticed they had turned off the the air conditioning system, so it's like really stuffy and stale. Is that mm-hmm. still the case? Yeah, the, get- um, they had the door closed to the printer room, and it was like really hot in there because that printer. <laughs> so <laughs> I opened it back up to. We're gonna not pull the toner it. cartridge because of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> But I've been up here a couple times because of internet issues, and it's it's been pretty dead every time. Yeah. Sam, where are you at? Uh, I am more or less in my office. I'm in the Bethel Writing Center, which since we're now online, I've just taken over as my podcast studio. So I'm just leaving <laughs> stuff up. It's kind of great. Nice. Uh, this is an introvert's dream. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have a moment of silence for all the extroverts out there who are just dying inside right now you mean like me more <laughs> i didn't say it i didn't say it. you know i'm, I'm increasingly <laughs> wondering if i really am an extrovert because this drives me slightly nuts too so well this is this is trying for all but the most hardened uh introverts i think yes Sam is <laughs> is fifth in the air. <laughs> yeah it, it's not been bad although i'm going a little stir crazy my wife absolutely loves it right now though so it's uh, working that, out fine yeah. for her so yeah I've got um, my wife is a, my wife's a teacher, and of course I'm getting ready to spin my classes up into online classes. She's doing the same thing, and we have two small kids at home here who are going to start be doing homeschool uh, in the course of the next um, the next day, couple days, and so things are about to get a little bit hairy in the Moore household. So I'll have plenty to keep yeah. me busy, but it's gonna be interesting. Um, it's going to be interesting, too, because Minnesota, as of yesterday, has entered into the same realm as about 10 or 12 other states of the union in asking for basically different kinds of versions of shelter-in-place orders. Uh, right. We're going to get to more of that in a second, um, talking about how different states have handled um, uh, this coronavirus pandemic. But uh, before we dive into that, just as a quick announcement, we're going to be trying to do these things regularly. Assuming this audio works out, Sam, and things continue to work well for, for posting online, we do have mm-hmm. a shelter in place order. So as long as we can get access to the right kinds of equipment to post these uh, podcasts, we'll continue to fill up your podcast feed. But um, as of right now, Minnesotans are being told to not leave their homes except for a variety of more essential kinds of functions. 
seeking medical care, seeking food. Um, Can I ask a politics question about the list of places that are okay, that are okay to stay open? Uh, sure. Because on that list was liquor stores, and is that like a <laughs> liquor? I'm not being serious. Is that like a liquor lobby? That like oh you, oh, you bet. Yeah, like oh, I did like because that's not an essential. I mean. <laughs> it's not essential in the way a grocery store is essential. Right. Right. Um, right. I, mean, I, 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 I think this is a matter of keeping the peace. Essential, but you know, I, I think there were probably revolution because all the bars are shut down, right? Because yeah. you can't like do carry out beer um, yeah. or right. drinks, right? There would be revolution. So I think it's yeah. all about like keeping peace and order. So yeah, 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 it, yeah it's, it's mostly socially palliative. But I think I mean, we should we should expect that the uh, the sort of the lobby of convenience stores is probably pushing for, uh, for that hard. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the responses. Um, I thought the way to frame this would be first, if one of you would want to take point and just kind of remind um, our listeners why we do things federally. And the reason I bring this up is we have seen a lot of different kinds of responses from different countries uh, to the coronavirus. Um, there's a huge difference between how authoritarian countries like China um, have responded to this versus how more democratic countries like, like South Korea or Italy uh, or Germany have responded to this crisis. But there's also a difference in terms of how those countries are governed internally. So somebody jump in. Tell us a little bit about America's federal structure and why that's affecting how we respond. Well, I was going to kick it to our comparativist. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but maybe maybe I can speak on the American side briefly. Maybe Andy can do a little compare and contrast. Okay. So, um, so in the United States, obviously we have um, not a completely unique system, um, but we have a system in which um, our state governments, um, our regional governments, you might say, actually do have a good deal of power. Um, and state governors actually have certain powers that even the president of the United States does not have. Um, so the president of the United States is given broad powers related to national defense um, and foreign policy and the Constitution. Um, but beyond that, um, there isn't a whole lot spelled out in the Constitution about what sorts of emergency powers the president has in regards to sort of domestic crises. Um, but on the other hand, state constitutions um, do spell out in more detail what sort of powers that governors and also mayors uh, within um, the several states have um, to actually, it turns out they have uh, broad discretionary powers in emergency situations um, to actually, you know, shut down businesses uh, to require people to stay home. Um, this is not a power that has really ever been exercised um, at the federal level. So the the president can um, can certainly use some executive orders to uh, promote, um, you know, to um, to help with production of, of medications. He can do things uh, to give directives to like the FDA or the CDC, and they can give recommendations, but the states are in no way bound to follow um, these recommendations by the federal government, by the president. Uh, there's a lot of power um, within the states, and some states have then delegated this power further down to, um, to the mayoral level as well. Um, and so really where most of the big decisions are being made is is by governors and by mayors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean that you know our system stands in kind of stark contrast to the Chinese, for example, right? Who were able to kind of implement this really harsh quarantine 
um, and these pretty extreme measures because you have an authoritarian government, you have a much more centralized power. Um, so Xi Jinping just has options um, in his hands that Donald Trump does not have as the American president. Um, and I think it's also important to note, just kind of comparing the U.S. with other cases, that, you know, there's so far at least um, the implementation has been much more reliant here on you know, people's goodwill and people's cooperation, right? And so, you know, Tim Walls, even you know, our governor made clear, I mean, like, you know, we do have this shelter in place order starting at midnight this Friday, but it's not going to be enforced in the sense that, you know, if you venture out, you're likely to get pulled over and questioned about where are you going? Are you going somewhere essential or not, right? Um, it's more that we, we would like you to respect this. And, you know, if we see you having a, you know, kind of, rock music, you know, sort of event, right, in the public park with 100 people, right, then we'll come talk to you. But, you know, we're Andy not... Andy described the plot to Dirty Dancing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not going to be a lot of, like, sort of enforcement, whereas in some places in Europe, we are seeing them, you know, fining, and, you know, there's there's actually crackdowns on people violating this. Um, here so far, it's been more like, we're asking really nicely, please cooperate. And for the most part, Americans are are falling in line uh, with these suggestions. You haven't yep. really had to have, you know, the states deploying the National Guard to go out um, right. and crack down on, you know, pull people over and demand, yep. you know, where they're going. So for yep. the most part, there's been a high degree of compliance. Besides building uh, uh, the rule to help induce compliance, the law, the rule also helps provide the state some kind of recourse should there be some kind of mass violation. Not, not so much Andy's Rock Festival, but sort of if a large company said, um, we need all of our employees to come into work. Yes, we're not essential, but we don't care. Our, our, yeah. our jobs are on the line. Come in or get fired. This would give employees recourse to say right. the state is, is not prohibiting us or permitting us to go do that. Um, mm -hmm. and, that and I think it's for those kinds of reasons that laws like this are getting passed. Yeah, and the enforcement mechanism there is you just find the company or you remove certain sorts of licensure, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, and that's a lot easier to enforce that on companies um, than trying to you know pull people over and find them, right? Yep. And companies in general, I mean, this that's a good enough incentive to get companies to fall in line. So. Right, and there's a lot of social incentive right now, I think, too, just oh, because yeah. I mean, the narrative, for good or for ill, right, has been, like, you need to do this for the kind of greater good, and so you don't want to be the one, you know, well, unless you're Liberty, maybe, but for the most part, you don't want to be the one who's flouting <laughs> this, right? Um, it just oh, my, oh, my friends, we are going to get to Liberty. Hold on. <laughs> oh, <yeah. clears throat> All right, so what you guys have described is this idea that um, – States have powers that the federal government doesn't necessarily have. Likewise, the federal government has powers that states don't necessarily mm -hmm. have. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how these two groups are interfacing as we confront this, <laughs> this pandemic crisis. So what are some of the things the federal government is doing or could do but hasn't done yet? And likewise, where do we see some of the variance in states? Let's start with the federal government. What has been Congress and the president's response uh, to the coronavirus? Well, I'll get you. I'll, Everybody I'll, at once. I'll, 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 so um, after several rounds of negotiation that actually failed, it now uh, the Senate and the, and the House have agreed to a $2 trillion emergency yep. spending plan, uh, which is going to go to President Trump. And it's almost inconceivable that he wouldn't sign it. So this is going to this is going to get doled out. Um, right. $2 trillion. It's the biggest emergency spending plan of our lifetimes. It's um, real money. 
it's, it's they say. real real money uh yeah. what is what's what's entailed in this a lot um there's there's something for everybody um so there's loans to businesses uh there's small business loans there's money for hospitals um and you know medical supplies there's payments to households um everyone is going to get up to like a 1200 dollars check it's going to be great um there's tax <laughs> deferrals and extended deadlines there's unemployment insurance um there's uh support for airlines and cargo carriers um there's support for public transit um there's there's all sorts of um goodies for for everybody in this bill so watch your mailboxes people i know yes yeah. So let's talk just a little. If you bit. don't have anything else to do, you can't leave your house. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I actually can't. My, don't my spend mailbox, it all at once. So. My mailbox is in my neighbor's yard. I don't think I can go get my mail right now. Um, yeah, that's true. And, and how are you supposed to cash these checks? That's, <laughs> anyway, yes, my bank is on my, my mobile banking. Bank like um, all right. So here's the deal. Um, we just very quickly and very relatively efficiently. Yes, there was a few days of negotiation, but at the end of the day, this was very efficient congressional okay. process. Spent two trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, we want to see what our deficit is going to look like. It's like, where is this? Yeah, that's where I was going for. Where is this coming from? The giant black hole of <laughs> national. Which is before this was something like nineteen or twenty trillion already. Trillion. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So you know we just bumped it up by ten percent overnight. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, it's uh, it's the astonishing. Man. I mean, how much money um, is in this bill? And this is the first stimulus bill, uh, by the way. I mean, we could see more of these um, yeah. in the future, depending on how long this drags out. Now, Matt, you sound very skeptical there, but I haven't heard any economists really railing against this. The deficit hawks of either party have really gotten very quiet. Yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone agrees that some deficit spending is probably a good idea. I think there's disagreement over maybe the extent of the deficit spending and then where that deficit spending should be targeted um, mm. and how it should be distributed and what sorts of strings might be attached to it. So, you know, should we give just should we just start writing checks to companies or should we say um, we will give loans to companies at basically zero percent interest, but you have to pay them back within two years. And then you there's other stipulations on how right. this money can be used. Like you can't do stock buybacks or you can't um, lay off more than a certain percentage of your workforce, et cetera. So there's a lot of debate over how this money is supposed to be used responsibly um, right. over, over the coming years. Yep. And that did make its way into the actual provisions of the $2 trillion spending bill. Right. Um, uh, members of Congress, members of the presidential administration uh, cannot receive this money. And any company that takes this money um, cannot buy back their own stock within two years of paying off the loan itself. So however long it takes them to pay it back, there's another year, or another year, excuse me, after that, that they can't buy their stock back. So this is designed to kind of prevent some of the lessons that we learned from the 2009 financial downturn. Yeah. Um, so, okay, that's the federal level. The federal government is pretty good at basically throwing a large amount of money at this. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the state level. Well, maybe we could back up. I mean, this right, is just please. the economic. This is just the economic mm -hmm. side. I mean, obviously, there's mm -hmm. money in this for for hospitals um, and for, you know, there's more money for you know medical supplies and um, and testing um, and developing. Uh, developing, you know, um, vaccines and and treatment regimens, um, but obviously, even before Congress, you know, spent 
um, or decided to pass this bill, which has not yet passed. The House still has to pass it, by the way. Right. Any um, chance they won't? Pelosi is saying it will pass, um, but basically they're doing a weird thing. They're actually using a voice vote um, instead of a roll call vote. So literally members don't have to come into Washington. They can like record themselves doing a voice vote um, and that <laughs> for the purpose. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, so that they you can know, practice their You know, there's system. some antiquated member of the House going, is this on? Is this on? Is this on? <laughs> tap, tap, tap. <laughs> So this is where you can insert your deep fake conspiracy theories, but I'll oh, just yes. lob that out there and, and leave it at that. But, yeah. but I mean, we could also discuss um, sort of the role of the federal government. I mean, not just in deal in providing this sort of economic support, but also the role that they've had in, um, um, in, uh, in sort of the regulation of, 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 of medications, um, especially getting uh, testing, um, testing supplies um, and chemicals, yeah. um, basically mass producing those in a timely fashion. Um, and so you could talk about the FDA and the CDC. So the government had a role well before Congress started considering this economic package. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to something to file this away uh, after we talk about states, but I want to talk about the relative roles of bully pulpits here. We've seen a lot of yeah. governors really assert themselves in sort of dramatic ways. And I'd like to talk about that too. But before we get to that, let's talk about what states are empowered to do. So compared to what the uh, federal government has been doing um, in terms of regulation uh, to the FDA um, and also through you know public spending, what are states doing? Well, um, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but obviously states are instituting a variety of measures um, for for uh, testing, for um, getting people to sort of distance themselves, you know, shutting down certain sorts of businesses, um, trying to figure out what sorts of spaces can be verted into sort of makeshift hospitals, um, recalling recalling retired um, healthcare workers um, who might, you know, their licenses might elapse, but say, hey, we're going to bring them back in anyway because we need their help. I mean, there's a whole host of things that uh, state governments mm -hmm. are doing right now. I mean, there's obviously educating the public about what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really critical role as well. And of course, governors and mayors have a, have a particularly important role in that. Um, you know, getting out information, encouraging people to, you know, take the measures so that the government doesn't have to use coercion to get people to fall in line. So, um, so there's a lot of things that, that states and, and cities and municipalities are doing at this stage that really the federal government in our particular federal system is not as well equipped to do. Right. And particularly, I think because because this is so widespread, right? I mean, like if you think about, you know, what the national government can do, I mean, it can intervene in crisis situations. You can think about like kind of responses to hurricanes, right? And things like that. But because this is all over the place, I mean, it really doesn't have at some level the ability to go in and do this kind of enforcement work and figuring out these, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, figure out the hospital situation and so forth. So it really does, you know, we do lean on that kind of state level government um, to to carry that out. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is the advantage of this, this system, um, the federal system, because it does allow, you know, then states to be responsive to the particular situations in their state um, and, you know, to the particular culture of their state too, which I think matters. I mean, you have to think about not only what is sort of optimal from a healthcare standpoint, but also what can you pull off, right? What can you get 
Minnesotans to do versus what you can get Texans to do, right? Which may not be exactly the same things. Yeah. Um, and, and so how do you approach that? Because it doesn't do anyone any good if you come up with these solutions that look great on paper, but that you can't sell to your state. Um, and I think this does give us that kind of flexibility to say, you know, different parts of the country are different and we have to think about, you know, how does this work in a particular context? Yeah. And that's where, you know, um, you know, having a federal system is, is so helpful, um, especially for really large, diverse uh, countries like the United States. Um, so you can look at Italy right. or Germany. You know, they're not small countries by any means, but um, they are dwarfed mm -hmm. by the U.S. in terms of geography, um, diversity of interests, right. um, it's just sheer population size. Um, mm -hmm. And and so there's some real benefit um, by having a, a federal system in which, you know, some states that are getting just completely hammered right now, like New York, can take more yep. drastic measures, whereas yep. states in the middle of the country, like Minnesota, were not a quarter as bad as New York um, is. Even though our testing hasn't been great, we know that it's not as bad as New York. And so we don't have to take maybe quite the same measures here um, mm -hmm. that are going to be as economically damaging. So you have mayors and governors that are better situated with information about their states right. and about the situation, better situated to make decisions about some very difficult trade-offs, decisions right. that you really can't expect, you know, a set of administrators in Washington, D.C. to be able to make effectively for everyone in all of these unique contexts. Though I will say um, that it's not just uh, pragmatic governors making decisions relevant to their states. <laughs> there, are, there are some ideology questions here. Oh, yeah. There are yes. some questions here too. So let me give you a couple states just by way of example. And everyone on this podcast already thinks that I'm some kind of huge homer uh, when it comes to uh, the state of Ohio, but yeah. leading, the, leading the charge amongst all governors uh, in the fight against coronavirus has got to be Governor Mike DeWine of, of Ohio. Um, Ohio was out very early relative to most other states in terms mm -hmm. of the relative severity of the public policy options that they launched into. They um, did a shelter-in-place order much faster than everybody else, uh, even uh, even faster than New York. Uh, they went through um, mobilizing the the state you know, national guard units. Um, uh, to help enforce those those uh, shelter-in-place rules. Um, and DeWine's a Republican and uh, mm -hmm. has been a frequent critic, uh, was a frequent critic of Donald Trump when Donald Trump was still underplaying the crisis. And so there's yeah. some real inter-party uh, disagreements here. In contrast to DeWine, in contrast to Ohio, the governor of Louisiana, I don't know if you guys saw this yesterday, just signed an executive order overriding any local shelter in place orders so basically rather than allow local mayors or, or um parish what, 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 who's the leader of a parish because louisiana has parishes right um, yeah i don't know the name <laughs> but a constabulary no i have no idea um priest but, no wrong uh, wrong, entity. Yeah, wrong entity <laughs> um but the uh, basically, if they had sort of signed sort of like local shelter in place orders, he basically said, no, those aren't, you know, we're keeping Louisiana open. So very, just very different approaches. Both of them Republicans, very different philosophical approaches even to um, to coronavirus. Can we is there any politics that explains that or is this is sure the difference between the two people who are the governors of these states? Well, actually, I mean, isn't the governor of Louisiana Democrat. It's John Bill Edwards, right? Oh, is yeah. it? I mean, so, and, and here's Democrat a corollary. Um, so, um, 
to like sort of you get like this mayor governor thing going on. So mm -hmm. so um, de Blasio, uh, mayor of New York, got on TV and started speculating about, you know, I think I might do a like shelter in place order for New York kind of speculating on air, which is never a good thing, by the way, no. but speculating no. on air. Um, and then Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, says like, absolutely none of that. We're not shutting down. Like you shouldn't be speculating on air. And then a, like a day later, then he institutes a shutdown. Right. Yeah. So they're both Democrats. So so I think, you know, really it is uh, you would have to look at state constitutions to see this. But, you know, in some states you do have more power that is given to mayors. But in some states, it's more clearly the purview of the governors. And so you can right. kind of get these sort of, um, you know, political sort of um, battles between mayors and governors, even within the same party. So, right. Right. And to Andy is correct. John Bell Edwards uh, was elected in 2016, and he's a Democrat. Yeah, and he's and he's an odd. I mean, like you know, he's certainly much more conservative as you would expect from Louisiana. But it is interesting. Like, I mean, like so, I think there is an ideological component to this, but it doesn't always fit neatly, right? And I think that that example you raised, Chris, does illustrate that. That you know, there's some Republicans who've been very proactive. There's some Democrats who've been reluctant, and then there's certainly a lot of you know Republicans who've been dragging their feet, and Democrats who've been very proactive. Um, yeah. including our own governor walls who's been pretty proactive yeah i would put minnesota within certainly the top quarter of states in terms of proactivity and yeah. sort of trying to get out in front of this yeah um, i would agree would we is it fair to say that um size of population of state matters in these conversations in the sense of the way it, it somewhat predicts uh, proactivity um Obviously, California and New York both got caught flat-footed uh, by mm -hmm. the coronavirus, and they've since been sort of running to catch up, and those are two of our most populous states. But mm -hmm. other states that are sort of in that next echelon of populism, like Ohio's in the top 10 in terms of uh, size of states. Yep. Um, Michigan has been uh, pretty proactive in response. Uh, Texas, relative to other southern states, has been pretty proactive in terms of its response. At least that's my read on things. Is mm -hmm. that fair? Is that the is is population somebody's driving the imperative to respond here? Yeah, I mean, two things. I mean, so it's not just population, but a lot of these big states have huge cities, and so there's an yeah, awareness. There's mm, awareness of of the need to implement some strong members measures quickly because big cities are the epicenters of, right. of the worst part, you know, the, the epicenters of this viral spread. Mm -hmm. But another thing, you know, California, New York being a couple of the most populous states, you know, there are also the states um, in which you had the most people from abroad traveling in with, you know, with mm -hmm. the virus and spreading mm -hmm. sure. it around before we sure. really knew how serious this was. And so right. it happens that those states also happen to be very populous, right? So you have mm -hmm. to control for, for that factor as well. Yeah, yep. the, the counterfactual here would be, it seems like Florida has been very slow to respond and in some ways almost reticent to undertake even national level measures. And right. that's a very populous state with a lot of, a lot of big cities and a lot of, uh, and a large uh, foreign population moving into the state too. So yeah. that would be an interesting site. And obviously Florida is uh, really driven by tourism and that's probably helping make right. it more reticent to want to sort of shut the state down. But this is a, um, this is a stark contrast to even other states on the on the coast, right? Right, but it also might be a really I mean, vulnerable I population. I mean, they're they're old. You know, there are a lot of old yeah. people, which puts them at a higher risk for this virus. Yeah, they do. Yeah. On the flip side, they're in a warmer climate, um, yeah. and and that means basically stronger UV radiation, uh, which means that they are definitely at risk than lower. There's a lower risk there um, than there is in places like Minnesota or New York State. So. Sure. Sure. Um, 
just before we get, get too deep into epidemiology, the UV radiation <laughs> means that um, the virus has a harder time existing outside, right? So as yes. sunlight hits the virus, it kills it more quickly. Right. Um, it's not a vampire, but pretty quickly. Um, and so- um, <laughs> Wait, you I'll, mean I don't need to wear this garlic around my neck? <laughs> it can't hurt, Andy. it can't hurt. Um, it keeps people away from me, so. <laughs> and, and properly fried, it's delicious. But- it is, um, that's true. But yes, I mean, uh, uh, most of this transmission is occurring in close contact, which is why we're yes. doing things like canceling con yes. concerts, closing right. malls, um, closing church gatherings. But um, yeah, obviously, uh, there's a plenty of concern about all those spring breakers down in uh, Miami Beach, but <laughs> maybe less so than if they were, you know, all vacationing up here in Minnesota, perhaps. Um Okay, other thoughts on uh, the U.S. response, in particular response compared to other states or other countries and how, um, uh, how they've responded to this crisis? Well, I mean, what, I mean I'm mean, i not an expert on any of this. Um, certainly not. A, <laughs> and that has never <laughs> stopped a caveat. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on public health mm -hmm. policy, um, but it does seem like the U.S. has been really, really slow um, to ramp up testing. Um, mm -hmm. And that is in part due to pre-existing procedures and rules in the FDA and the CDC um, that have made it extremely difficult um, for the government and even for the private sector to ramp up the production of basically these testing kits and the chemicals that are used in them, um, which means that and that's really how you were going to how we're going to deal with this virus effectively. That's how South Korea has effectively dealt with this yeah. virus is they've done very broad testing and then they've targeted um, the people who are vulnerable or the people who yep. have it or who might have it because they've been exposed, they target them, they isolate them, they quarantine them. Um, and that's how they're able to start reopening while still maintaining sort of a, a you know, balancing the economics with the, the public, uh, the public health. Uh, but we are so far behind in testing. And that is in part due to procedures that were, you know, set up by the FDA and the CDC. I mean, it's astonishing that, um, that it took, six weeks before we were really able to get a handle on 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 how bad the problem was and to get the FDA and CDC to to basically open up procedures for testing to happen. So what happens and this is interesting to me, what happened is eventually you got a declaration of an emergency that is supposed to allow the CDC and the FDA to basically um, to open up um, basically the production of these test kits to the private sector. But what you want during um, the declaration of emergency is to make sure that those test kits can be produced faster. So you're a little bit less worried about making sure that it's really high quality, um, that right. your test kits will never produce false positives, right? So you're less worried about that. You're more interested in making sure that you can crank them out quickly. But right. interestingly, the, F, the, the procedures for the FDA or does the opposite. When you declare emergency, it actually places a higher standard for the production of these test kits instead of lowering the standard so you can get it out more quickly. So giant, giant mistake. That? Say what? What's the rationale for that? The rationale, as I read it, was that because the stakes are more are higher now for public health, you want to make sure, even doubly sure, that your tests are accurate. Um, but as you know, some other epidemiologists were saying, like, really, what matters then is not precision, but broad testing. Yeah, yeah right. Um, I mean, and, sure. and that's just one one sort of institutional failure um, yeah. that 
um, that has you know exacerbated our ability to respond to this crisis. And that is quite apart from whatever failures that states have had or that the Trump administration has had. Like there are bureaucratic failures that are exacerbating our ability to really deal effectively with this problem. Yeah, and that's and that's been a big issue. I mean, like, because what's weird is all you get all these numbers about, you know, like, you know, I mean, you keep the number keeps climbing, and how many cases we've had in Minnesota and so forth. But the numbers are, I mean, I hate to say they're meaningless, but they're almost meaningless, right? Because we're so yeah. under testing, right? I mean, so you know, I was just you know chatting in different ways with friends, none of whom I've seen within the infection period, by the way, but who probably have had this, right? Um, but you know, they don't know because nobody's getting tested, right? I mean, like, well, we're not, you know, we're not in the high risk category. We're not a medical professional. We don't need hospitalization. So we're not going to get tested, right? Um, which means, I mean, we're wildly underreporting, um, you know, like how many of these cases? I mean, the Star Tribune was, you know, our, our newspaper here in Minneapolis, right, was saying we probably have anywhere from 10 to 100 times more cases in Minnesota right now um, than our official, you know, numbers show, right? Um, which means, of course, that we're also, you know, if, if that's the case, right, we're also overestimating in some ways how how deadly it is, right? Because we're only right. tracking the cases we've actually shown have it. And of course, we're catching all the ones where people are, you know, seriously ill, right? Um, but we're, what we're not catching is the really mild ones. I mean, one of us might have it right now, right? Um, but we don't know. If we, <laughs> I, it's all cough into the mic, right? <laughs> um, I have not been coughing recently, which is amazing. Usually this time recently. of winter I am. So. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but, you know, it's so that's that's the other like really weird piece of this. And you're right. I mean, like, it's just it's a big fail, a kind of bureaucratic fail. I mean, the other thing we should mention, I think, related to all this is just that, you know, I think the as has been a recurring theme on this podcast, the message we get out of the White House has been, um, you know, inconsistent. Right. I mean, it's just it's not quite clear, you know, what is the line. Right. I mean, Trump for a while was kind of poo pooing this as. Uh, kind of a whole lot of nothing. And then it's like this really terrible thing that we're going to kind of, you know, label in different ways. And then recently he's back to saying like, we should go back to work right by Easter. Um, and so it's, which, it's, which he did not uh, say, by the way, we should be clear what he said. He said, he said, I would like for us, I would hope right. that would we like would go back. Us, yeah. He didn't, yeah. he didn't declare that, we you know, to. we're going to end all social distancing. So people are right. flipping out over that. Um, yep. But you're right. He has been inconsistent. Um, yeah. It's just been a kind of mixed messages. So, you know, like they need to pick a line, I guess, and they haven't yeah. nailed the line. I'm not apologizing for, uh, for the president at all. Um, this is a time to really exert presidential leadership. And I think he's, has not distinguished himself in this time frame. Right. But I will say that we knew prior to this whole crisis that speaking uh, in precise technical language was not the president's yep. forte. And yep. we're now in a crisis where he is required to speak with fair amount of precision and technicality. Yep. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he has to be contradicted by his own medical personnel staff. And his yeah. own advisory staff. He's even if if anything of, of this nature, he's not going to be well suited to speaking with the kind of precision necessary to give factual information. I don't yeah. know. I mean, part of that is he always is trying to play, um, paint the rosiest window he can, um, but it's um, he's particularly ill suited with his rhetorical style to this kind of this kind of crisis. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Agree. <laughs> well, um, we have. Uh, more to talk about, but man, I, I can we can we switch to the field of higher education here for a second since we're talking about the president? Uh, sure. Almost all institutions, including uh, our own institution, are 
giving up basically on face-to-face classes for the semester. We're all still hopeful that we can get back to college as normal come August, basically. But for the rest of the semester, we're gonna be teaching online. Almost every comparison institution I can think of is teaching online with one notable exception. Uh, Liberty University, which is a Christian evangelical institution, um, very well known because of its president, Jerry Falwell Jr., has been an ardent supporter of the president, has announced that starting this next week, they're getting back to business as usual. And they're in Virginia, um, in the greater sort of D.C. area, it's Lynchburg, Virginia, and they're going to be holding classes. There are two other schools, uh, higher education schools, in Lynchburg, and both of them are um, teaching online until the end of the semester. Right. What can we can we draw a political inferences from Liberty, or is this sort of unique to Jerry Falwell? <laughs> it's uh, it's Falwell. Can we just leave it at that? <laughs> okay. So I guess what, yeah. I was asking, what I was asking is: is there something within evangelicalism that is more skeptical of medical messaging about the coronavirus than? Um, I think that's. I don't know. I well. I've not seen any polling on this, so yeah. I, I don't know for sure. But I mean, most evangelical schools are shutting down, and everyone's fine with that. Yep. Um, I mean, yeah. there were people who were. I mean, th- there was reports like the mayor of the city of Lynchburg didn't know that Falwell was going to do this until he basically announced it on Twitter or something to that effect. Very Trumpian, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. this is this is Falwell. Um, okay. I don't think this is. I don't think you can draw broader implications about about you know evangelicals thumbing their nose at at social social distancing and yeah okay. yeah I, I think i'm inclined to agree i mean Falwell has been skeptical all along you know this is you know he was on you know on the air speculating about this being a plot to try to bring down trump you know sort of um yeah. and i think he's just letting his sort of like you know he's pretty extreme ideological blinders um get and, and a very particular view of this um kind of make you know influence his decision making but it is interesting that, I mean, you got a lot of other places where people are also like Falwell, very supportive of this president and are following the public health guidelines. Right. So yeah. um, I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I, it's very, it does seem kind of particular to Falwell. Um, which I, I mean, I, I don't think you can really draw, I don't think you can draw inferences about what one guy says to a whole group of people. I mean, right. Falwell was on either Fox news or CNN last week saying that North Korea created this virus to take down Trump. Yeah. So you can't you can't draw draw a broader inference. They did. About a group they of did promise a spring surprise, and here we are. Right. Yeah. It is spring. That's what that's what Falwell said. Now, I, I think I agree with you guys. On the other hand, though, let me just suggest that there are some scholars out there, at least public thinkers, who differ and who see a link between evangelicalism and incredulity of expert opinion. Uh, Tom Nichols has written about this and others have written about this idea that for various reasons, uh, particularly evangelicals, particularly those who have tied themselves to the Republican Party, which is most evangelicals, um, display higher degrees of skepticism about public health, vaccination, um, uh, global warming, uh, those kinds of issues. And Sure. There's not a big jump between those kinds of things and public health things. Uh, being more skeptical of, of, of uh, expert medical opinion and leaning on more things like, dare I say, essential oils or things like that. Um, maybe there's a maybe this is part of a of a broader trend too. Yeah, although I would I would push back a little bit um, because it's it's hard to tease out that sort of strand of evangelicalism from a broader kind of populism because uh, mm. you also get on the left. 
a certain brand of populism that is also, um, you know, very crunchy, very distrustful of certain sorts of experts as well. Um, and so, well, we also have that, from anti-vaxxers as well. That's a good. Point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You get the anti-vaxxers and and other, uh, you know, and I, I think there's you know reason to be concerned about vaccines, but you you get that group on both sides, right? So I don't think you can reduce it to evangelicalism necessarily. I think there's a, a bigger social phenomenon that's going on. Okay, I think that's yeah. fair, but. I've not looked at the data really closely to see how you can control for that. So yeah, and it's it's tricky because um, evangelicals are because they're overwhelmingly Republican, and because they overwhelmingly right. support Trump. There's this triple bind to figuring out: are they supportive of Trump because they're evangelical? Are they supportive of Trump because they're Republican? Are they Republican because they're supportive of Trump? You know, like, like there's a, there's a it's a really hard to tease out that causality chain. Yeah, mm -hmm. as usual. So. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we can't explain liberty. Um, we can explain a little bit of variance among states. But uh, one last question here. Um, I have heard really an overwhelming amount of, of something that I would classify. And again, I'm going to say this a little bit sheepishly because both of you have a lot more training in terms of political theory than I do. Um, so I'm going to say this with a, with a little bit of trepidation. But I've heard a lot more Republican messages in the last couple of weeks because of this virus than I have heard in a long time. Now, that's what I mean by that. I don't mean Republican like the GOP. I mean Republican in a classic sense of the term Republican, where mm -hmm. there's a real notion that, um, that citizens of a, of a polity need to be committed to the public project of the polity. They need to be committed to um, acting as, in terms of civic duty and acting in terms of, of uh, what's best for each other and the polity as a whole, and that we are members of this common project together. And there is Republican language running all through the Constitution, all through the Declaration of Independence, but over the course of the, of the last hundred years especially, that really has gotten drowned out by um, liberalism. And I mean, again, I mean liberalism in the classic sense, which is individual autonomy, individual freedom, individual... Um, uh, rights and benefits, right? And whether it's on the, on the conservative side, like the Second Amendment, you know, I should be allowed to own a gun regardless of what you think of it. Or on the on the liberal side, I should be allowed to marry whomever I want regardless of what you think of it. These are sort of liberal autonomy questions. Yeah. What we've really seen is, is sort of the clarion call to wash your hands, to social distance, to shelter in place. The arguments, the, the, the moral arguments made on behalf of this are Republican arguments. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the 80-year-old who's in who's in a nursing care facility down the road from you. That's why you're doing this. You're doing it for others, and that's a. I, I've been struck by that. Am I am I misreading this? Is this unusual, or have we sort of in this era of crisis sort of looked to republicanism over liberalism as a justification for our behaviors? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think obviously you do see more of this coming to the fore, right? And so I'm not quite sure how much of this is, you know, reactivating a latent republicanism that is in a lot of us, mm -hmm. perhaps um, a concern for community that only comes out when it's really clear that the community has to band together and mm -hmm. be concerned for the common good. Mm -hmm. um, so how much of this is a rebirth mm -hmm. and how much of this is just an activation of some latent republicanism that's already there i'm not sure i think that's an interesting question mm -hmm. and the reason why it's it struck me is because i have heard a few voices um from my more libertarian friends 
who've, who've really kind of pushed back against this whole narrative of mm -hmm. basically banding together and doing things for the common good and basically saying why. So I'll give you an example. I have a friend who lives in the upper peninsula of Michigan. It's a piece of territory the size of most of many states in the union. It has about 300,000 people in it. Um, they are naturally practicing social distancing. Um, there are no yes. big cities there. It's very spread out. And uh, they're frustrated because Michigan's policy is basically being driven by the Detroit metro area and yeah. the, the spread of, of COVID-19 around the Detroit metro area. And they're saying, why are we being bound by rules that are basically being driven by Detroit? We should be able to kind of go about our lives. And why is, why is my freedom being restricted? Because yeah. other people can't act responsibly somewhere else. And th the reason why that message seems notable to me is because of how few people are making that argument at this time. Few people are making which argument precisely? Sorry. Fewer, fewer people are making that individual liberty argument. Like, why am I being told to right. stay home? I shouldn't have to do that um, as long yeah. as I'm, you know, I'm responsible for my actions. Um, yeah, and it seems like, yeah, there's fewer people even amongst, you know, the more, you know, of liberty-loving Republican types making that um, mm -hmm. than you than you might otherwise expect. So, I mean, because no. that's, and I think that's because, I mean, there's, you know, people do have an understanding, even if they, you know, aren't self-consciously Republican, they do have an understanding that, you know, um, you know, personal liberty isn't the only good in society, right? There is, right. there's communal uh, considerations uh, and co the common good as well. And that, you know, we obviously place different weights on these things. Um, some people place more weight on that naturally than others, but I think there are certain sort of exogenous forces like a coronavirus um, outbreak um, that can uh, push us to to lean more heavily um, on that side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I don't mean to belabor the point here, but I, I find it very I find it very intriguing. I think it's very interesting that. Um, I have I've heard almost no justifications for our responses in terms of individual liberty or individual health. You know, I haven't heard a lot of wash your hands, it'll keep you safe. I've heard a lot of wash yeah, your hands, sure. it yeah. keeps us safe. And I right. think that's, that's, that's very interesting. And I don't know that harbingers anything. I don't think that suggests that when this virus is passed, that we'll suddenly enter into a new era where we shun individual liberty and autonomy in favor of Republican spirit and ideals. No, no. But... No. Um, I, I did find it striking. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, that, it, it I, is striking. And it's, it's interesting too, because I mean, like the thing that I, I keep wondering about, because I'm one of the people who's a little, I'm a, I'm a little concerned about this side of our response, right? Is that it, it's focusing on our collective good in one very particular way, which is our kind of collective health good, right? But there are other goods we have to think about too. And so I think that's, you know, there needs to be maybe more conversation about that. Like how long can you shut down businesses and expect them to survive? Right. Um, what's going to happen with, with small business owners who are having to shutter for six, eight weeks. I mean, you know, like the big, the big corporations are going to be fine, right. They're going to find a way to function. If you have a work that can a workplace that can do most of its stuff remotely, you'll probably be fine. But, but you know, who's going to be harmed by this. Right. And so I think even that, that kind of collective good question is being exercised in one very particular area. Mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily extending elsewhere, right? To think yeah. about how you, how do you think about those those questions? Um, so well, maybe to put, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, maybe to put it differently, uh, I think you're seeing sort of how you know emphasis on the common good still doesn't get you very far in helping you weigh tank, you know, serious tensions within public policy, right? Because yeah. you do have people who. Um, are saying like, well, 
the common good requires us to shut everything down for two months. Um, and that's yep. the only way that we're going to weather this. You have people on the other side saying like, well, we should open up sooner rather than later. Maybe there is some um, some public health cost, but we have to weigh economic cost in this as well. Right. And so, right. you know, I want it's not merely that I want to go, you know, go shopping or go to the mall or, yep. you know, go to amusement park or go on vacation. It's that, well, we need to open up the economy because people's lives are being affected. The community is being affected by this economic shutdown. So you can make right. a Republican argument either direction. Right. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, that sort of core Republican value doesn't get you very far in helping you weigh these, you know, really serious um, competing goods, public health and, you know, the the economic well-being of the community. And let me warn, too, I think it gets harder than that even because, and I think this topic has come up before on the podcast, but um, I take seriously Phil Tetlock's work on taboo trade-offs. And we are not, mm. as a human species, particularly good at comparing uh, dollars to lives. Yeah, um, right. Even if we knew that a downturn in the economy of, well, for example, um, I don't know if you saw or not, but 3.3 million people filed for unemployment this last week, yep. uh, which is staggeringly off the charts. The, the the most people that applied for unemployment during the Great Recession of 2008-2009 was 600,000 in a week, and we got 3.3 million uh, wow. last week. So now, if the if the if the virus passes quickly and if people can be rehired quickly, a lot of that can can go away quickly too. So this could be much more like a V-shaped recession rather than a U-shaped recession. But nevertheless, like we're almost certainly in a recession right now. Oh yeah. And very, very suddenly. Um, But uh, we're not good at saying, okay, that level of downturn will lead to some people losing their lives. Just statistically, economic downturns mean that that will happen, but we're not good at thinking about it in those kinds of terms. So it's much right. easier to link a disease to a loss of life than it is economic right. loss to, to yep. the loss of life. Right. And I, I think that's to me that's the the kind of common good question that we're not we're not thinking about is and and, and I mean like the numbers are just so fuzzy for all of these right that I, I don't know how you make a good assessment of you know what what gets us kind of the optimal outcome. I think it's very tricky. Um, there's some people trying to, but again, all the numbers just feel so fuzzy right now that. I'm not sure how well you can do it, but I think we need to think about that seriously. I mean, you know, you know, people lose their jobs. They're, they're going to have less access to healthcare. That's going to create problems. You're going to have increased depression. That's going to lead to bad health outcomes, right? right. Um, and I mean, like, I also am thinking about things like, you know, yep. what about marriages, right? I mean, like, there's there's social consequences, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, you're you're forcing people to be cooped up at home, and you know, hopefully for a lot of us, <laughs> that's a good thing. But it's not a good thing for everyone, right? I mean, yeah, how many sure. does this push over the breaking point? And that, yep. and then that, it's going to spouses in vulnerable situations, with abusive spouses, things like What's that. What's that? Yeah, that's oh, a huge problem. problem. In, in situations really abusive spouses, yeah. So, so I mean, I think it's just you know, it's it's a lot more complicated than just like the you know, wash your hands so these people don't get sick. It's like, yeah, that that could save some lives there, but what are the other costs? And you know, I don't know. That there's a a way we can respond that's that different than what we're doing. I I am you know sympathetic with what our governor is trying to do. I understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, like I think there are these other costs, and they're going to hit us. Yeah. So. And yeah. and on that point, I mean, so so like there's all these unknowns about sort of the you know the the downstream costs of shutting down the economy, and so they're less immediate. 
Um, yep. The immediate um, or what's more immediately obvious is, you know, the deaths and the people that are sick in hospitals. And so um, and so that's why politicians have an enormous amount of pressure to focus on the immediately public health, the immediate yep. public health crisis um, yep. and to shut everything down now, um, yep. because that's 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 what's obvious. That's what people are paying right. attention to. That's what dominates the media. That's what gets people right. panicked. That's what people calculate into their, Absolutely. you know, skewed risk assessments. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's why you see all this pressure on, on politicians and, you know, I can't, can't necessarily blame them. Right. Um, if, you know, if it turns out that, you know, this coronavirus tends to, you know, be a lot more virulent and deadly than we thought, then they would just get absolutely hammered if they didn't oh, yeah. take drastic measures. Right. So it's, it's hard. Um, yeah. and, and then you get public health officials, you know, they're, they're the main good that they're interested in is saving lives against, you know, the, the novel coronavirus, right. They're not necessarily yeah. considering mm -hmm. the downstream economic effects. Right. Yeah. But those two create public health problems in the long term, and yeah. how you weigh those is just, it's so difficult. Right. Absolutely. Right. Well, guys, this has not been, uh, the cheeriest of podcasts. Shocking. So let's try and end this on a lighter note. Um, I'm going to ask Sam uh, and Andy and Matt, and then I'll, I'll go to, to share with us. We're all sheltering in place right now. We're all uh, spending a lot more time at home than we typically do. Uh, what's something that you are doing, a practice you're undertaking, either serious or lighthearted, um, to help you get through the shelter in place time? All right. Well, I'm going to say two. Um, one of them is as a family, we've we've started a board game league in our family. So we're keeping track. <laughs> I am not surprised by any of this. Go on. Yes. So we're keeping track of like, um, uh, like you get 10 points if you win the game, seven for second, third for three, four, uh, fourth place gets one. And uh, we're three games in. I, I won the first two games. And then whenever the, the deal is whenever we play a, a uh, cooperative game if we win as a team everybody gets 10 if we lose everybody gets one but we also have a vote for who was the most valuable player and you can't vote for yourself we played mm. it's a little on the nose we played pandemic last night and got <laughs> we played on a hard level we got obliterated but i was voted mvp so i currently have 26 points um, i'm 20 points ahead of my wife who's in last place so congratulations <laughs> On another note, um, this we are doing a ton of podcasting. So, if you're, I'm going to do a plug for the network here. If you're listening to, well, you obviously are listening to the Channel 3900 network. <laughs> if you hear me right now, uh, we have some almost every day, including weekends, we're going to be putting out shows. Um, so tomorrow we'll have a, a new episode of Tweet Victory. On Saturday we have an uh, episode four of the Modern Story podcast. On Sunday, we have a new podcast coming out called Video Store uh, with me and Barrett Fisher. We're talking about movies and movie recommendations while you're um, sheltering in place. On Monday, we have a new bookish at Bethel. Nice. Next Tuesday, we have Sarah Shady, public philosopher. She and I are going to talk about Albert Camus' The Plague, which is a very <laughs> fitting text for right now. Uh, and then I think we have a 252 coming up next Thursday. Is that right? Or next Wednesday? I don't remember. At any rate, there's going to be shows almost every day. So when are, yeah, we, doing, when are we doing Reader's Theater of Stephen King's The Stand? <laughs> That's mm. an inevitability, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Andy, what do you recommend for people either to consume um, or to contemplate or to do uh, during this time of sheltering in place? <laughs> well, I don't know what I recommend for them, but what I've been up to is... Um, I've been trying to reconnect with people a little bit more through phone. I had, I had gotten out of phone conversation mode other than, 
you know, with my immediate family. And so I'm just trying to get back into that. Um, so that's been good. I mean, I, you know, I miss being with people in person. Um, but, you know, sort of I've had a couple sort of phone calls with friends where I walk through the neighborhood and get my exercise walking around and talking. Um, so that's been that's been kind of nice. Um, we are also doing some gaming as a family, and that's been fun. Um, the other night, actually, Eleanor was all super stoked because she she won two of the games. Um, so she was beat, beat me in Clue and beat me in um, in Splendor. And so, you know, bedtime, she's like, "This was a great day. I won two games." <laughs> we were we don't have a league going, but I guess if we did, um, Eleanor might be at the top at the moment. Um, so so yeah, things like that. And then we're doing you know, a lot of reading as a family, um, reading aloud um, to you know the kids. Um, and I'm. Sarah and I are both doing a lot of just sort of individual reading. Um, mm-hmm. That's been been good. I just re, re, just re, finished rereading um, Heinz Feet on High Places. Oh, that was the most recent one I actually finished. And I have several others that I'm working on. Okay. Nice. Matt, how about you? Well, a uh, couple things. Um, so Courtney and I discovered that you can have Chicago deep dish pizza shipped to your door. I love this. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty flipping awesome. So, um, from Giordano's? so we ordered. Uh, say what? This from Giordano's or? Oh no no no! Oh no, my friend! Oh no! This is Umanati's. Oh, the there king, you go. The king of Chicago deep dish pizza. Amen. In my 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 humble opinion, um, yeah. and the opinion of of many many others who I know. Wait, so this from coming from Chicago, Chicago. XL? Oh yeah, it, it this is from Chicagoland, my friend. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's it's frozen, um, and it comes on a it, it's like overnight shipping on dry ice. Don't don't ask me how much this costs, but they're running a special last week, um, and there's there's nine inch deep dish pizzas shipped to your door. You pop one of those babies in the oven, and hmm, so good, so mm. good. So Courtney, I've been enjoying that. And um, I've also been reconnecting with a couple of uh, college roommates over some online strategy games um, with, right. uh, you know, voice, uh, voice connectivity. And so we've been catching up and that's been that's been really good. So cool. Nice. Yeah. Can I tell you my um, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but, but not 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 embarrassed enough to not tell you this. Uh, <laughs> when I was a, a, an undergrad in, in Michigan um, and we would a couple times a year, like go to Chicago for like a weekend or something like that. The first time is like a freshman. Someone's like, yeah, we're gonna go to Chicago. We're gonna get deep dish pizza from Luminati's. <laughs> and That's I great. just assumed there was a restaurant called the Illuminati pizza store. Right. Restaurant. Yeah. I'm like, right. And I, you know, as an 18 year old, I'd, I'd heard of the Illuminati. I'm like, I don't think I want to have that. That sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> so anyway, so for at least for a hot minute, I thought Lou Malnati's was the Illuminati. Um, oh, no, I know. I, I thought that for a while, too. With my Ohio accent. So um, <laughs> you guys all have better ideas than me. I'll just say this. I've uh, My kids, as much as I'm enjoying seeing your faces now on the computer in the Google Hangout, my uh, – my kids have both really enjoyed using uh, screen time to not just amuse themselves, but to catch up with friends. I'm su- I'm really surprised how my five year old has enjoyed like little play dates online with his other fellow five year olds, and like they both bust out Legos on both sides of the screen, That's <laughs> and they're like doing cooperative Lego building and stuff and sharing what they're putting together. And I don't know, it's something kind of heartening about that. It gives me, um, I don't know, it, even as I listen to them sort of chatter away, it sort of fills me with life too so that's my recommendation is don't be afraid of the technology the technology can um 
can get us through some of those social um, social distancing as well. Um, I will say just real quick, as I'll take my my other bit of my time here to give you guys just a quick Pioneer Ohio update. <laughs> I just told you about right. some of the politics in Pioneer Ohio, some of the things happening there. As you know, there was a very hotly contested mayoral election this last fall mm -hmm. in Pioneer. Mayor Ed Kinston won re-election um, by, I think, 16 votes um, over his challenger. Um, but here's the deal, guys. Um, with, with election secured and another term firmly in hand, Mayor Kinston and the uh, Ohio or the Pioneer City Council have decided to open up the checkbook. See, Ohio, uh, Pioneer signed a pretty lucrative uh, utility sharing agreement uh, years ago. And so over the years has been accumulating um, basically um, largesse from this utility sh sharing arrangement. And the, the city was sitting on uh, a rainy day fund of somewhere around $400,000. And so wow. what they decided, so for a couple of years now, they had been giving um, all residents of the city, residents of the town, to be honest, um, a rebate on their electric bills. But they decided to really up the ante. So with the onset of sheltering in place and uh, coronavirus, yeah, even acknowledging the fact there are no cases of coronavirus anywhere in Williams County yet, uh, um, they are giving every resident of the city free utilities for three months. So they're just canceling everybody's sewer, everybody's water, everybody's electricity. Um, and the only thing people have to pay for is garbage because garbage is private is a, is outsourced to a private company. So everything else is just getting covered by the city. And I find this really interesting because any model of sort of Richard Fenno, you know, so can poke politics would suggest that this is the kind of thing you would do back in the fall when the mayor was trying to get reelected. But right. he doesn't yep. have to work for reelection right now. He's just thinking this is a good idea to open up the city's coffers mm -hmm. and give everybody a, um, essentially a windfall during this difficult time. And I, I'm right. kind of heartened by that. And it's kind yeah. of striking. So wow. that's the big. So now you can take like mile. outrageously long showers now and not have to worry about. Oh your, yeah, your water exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid to wash your hands, Pioneer, Ohio. So that's right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So thanks, guys. This is super fun. Um, Sam, how can people get in touch with us if they want to send questions to the podcast? Well, this is like should be the most interactive time that we have. So you can email us at channel3900 at gmail.com and you should subscribe to the network. There's tons of good stuff. Awesome. Um, guys, on behalf, uh, we'll be in touch soon. Uh, if we can squeeze ourselves in somewhere within the uh, release schedule for uh, Channel 3900. Um, <laughs> you hear us again. Uh, this is Chris Moore saying thanks for listening. Let us know um, uh, what's going on. Ask us some questions. Um, and until we hear from you, go Royals. Go Royals.